Judge Shaw, Injury Law, 732-888-8888. Matt Judd. Demand justice. Demand Judd. The injury accident professionals. First class service. Judd gets it done. Maximum compensation's our goal. See JudgeShawInjuryLaw.com. Demand Judge Shaw, Injury Law, 732-888-8888. Matt Judd. Welcome to Hook, Line, and Splitter, a Jersey Shore Blue Claws podcast. And now, here's your host, Greg Giambarisi. Hook, Line, and Splitter, episode 65. Good day, everybody. I'm Greg Giambarisi. Hook, Line, and Splitter is presented, as always, by Judge Shaw Injury Law. We understand the toll that injuries take on families, and we're here to help. For a free consultation, call 1-866-909-6894. Visit Judge Shaw Injury Law. Dot com. That's Judd with two D's, shawinjurylaw.com. Very special episode. I hinted about it the last couple of episodes, but today we get a chance to sit down with Ryan McGee, an ESPN reporter who wrote one of the great baseball books ever, certainly one of the great minor league baseball books ever. Welcome to the Circus of Baseball, a story of the perfect summer at the perfect ballpark at the perfect time. Ryan was an intern with the Asheville Taurus in 1994, and he wrote the book chronicling an amazing summer with some hilarious stories, and you're absolutely going to love it. Whether you're a minor league baseball fan in general, whether you're just kind of a Phillies fan that follows the the minor leagues and listens to this podcast because you know we interview a lot of Phillies players and coaches and executives, or uh, whether you just like baseball or, or fun, you're, you're going to love it. Uh, so I'm not going to keep you too long while we uh, while we get ready. We do hope that you like, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, on Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, give us those five stars and buy the book. Welcome to the Circuits of Baseball by Ryan McGee. You can get it on Amazon or wherever uh, you get books. I couldn't possibly recommend it more. You're going to love the interview. Let's get to it. Ryan McGee, welcome to the Circuits of Baseball. Ryan McGee wrote, Welcome to the Circus of Baseball, a fantastic Look at his time interning for the Asheville Taurus in 1994, and he joins us now. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, it, it's uh, you know, we're we're a month into the minor league season, and yep. uh, and I've been in a lot of games, and uh, and you know, it's been knock on wood. Uh, I haven't been to a rain out yet, which is good. Oh, good. <laughs> That's good. That's the best part. Um, we'll we'll get to all that as we uh, as we go through. But my first question was, when did you decide to write? this book was it something you kind of had in the back of your head in 1994 or come come together over the last couple of years you know it, it's a great question and I, I i i think i even wrote this in the in the acknowledgments but bless my wife's heart you know i've been telling her these stories for 20 plus years ever since we've been married and so you know i and, I, and there was and it would, people have asked me how did you remember this and how did you remember that and about halfway through that 94 season i started taking notes because I, I was just, it felt like a story, you know? And, and so, uh, so yeah, the, the answer is I wanted to do it forever. And uh, I had the opportunity a few years ago to write a book with Dylan Hart Jr. And it did pretty well. And, and my book agent was like, hey, I think if there's the book you've always wanted to write, this might be the time to pitch it. And I'm like, well, this is the one I've always wanted to write. <laughs> yeah. This is about that summer 94. And so that that's where that came from. A long time. Uh, I had written it in my head over and over over the course of, you know, 30 years. And so I finally got to actually put pen to paper. And how'd you go back and you track down a lot of people and kind of just confirm some of the stories and get some of the quotes? Cause you know, you tell it like it was 1994, but that, that was, you know, almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, that's the best part was, was reconnecting with my friends, you know, that, you know, my, my best friend, my roommate in the book, Carlton Adcock, Carlton and I had stayed in touch for oh, forever. Um, and, and Jane Lentz who ran concessions, she came to my wedding. I mean, I, 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 but, but a lot of folks I had lost touch with. And so being, finding an excuse to pick up the phone or, you know, track them down on Facebook or whatever, mm -hmm. that was the best part. And so, uh, so yeah. And then, and then the best part too was, was there were times, you know, the, the, the journalist in me, right. I got to fact check everything. And I'm, I'm, I'm calling, I'm like, Hey, do you know, do I remember this right? Or I remember this right or whatever. And they're like, hell, I don't remember. You know, you, 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 <laughs> yeah. like you remember better than I do. And so, you know, it, and what was interesting was I, I just had this one summer 
right? And then, my, like, my friend R.J. Martino, he's worked in professional sports ever since. And Gary Saunders, the, the assistant GM, worked in minor league baseball for, for decades. And they didn't remember that summer as well as I did because I just had that one window of time, right? So there were people I remembered and details I remember, but but thankfully they could help. But yeah, but I would try to fact check stuff and they'd be like, dude, if that's how you remembered it, then that's probably how it went down. So it, yeah. that, that, that part of it was, was uh, that was interesting. It was, it was honestly, it was liberating because whenever I write anything for ESPN, it has to be pushed through all these filters of editors and fact checkers and all that. And I certainly did my due diligence on this stuff, but you know, in the end, if uh, if I remembered flying in the air at thirty feet, then that's what I was going to go with. <laughs> there you go. We'll get to that one. That that was a good that was a good uh, that was a good story. But the the book obviously takes place in Asheville, and you know, you said in the in the early parts of the book how you know you your family would go travel around to different stadiums all over the South, and I think what, what your your mom banned you guys from collecting any more cups, right? You had too too many souvenir cups from yeah. all the stadiums. So, yeah, no, mom, mom shut it down. Yeah, my yeah, mom was like, down. "All right, that, that, that's enough." You know, that's a, we, we still have we still have a little beach house on the on the, uh, the coast of North Carolina that we bought in the early '80s, and that thing is like a time capsule. And part of what's a time capsule about is you open up the cabinet, and there are stadium tumblers from teams that no longer exist, like mm-hmm. the Greenville Braves, right, and, and the, you know the Burlington Indians. And, and and these teams that don't even they've changed mascots or they've changed ballparks or they've moved to the, the Port City Roosters in Wilmington, North Carolina. They only existed for a couple of seasons. Yeah. And we still have the cups. I still drink for the cups every July fourth. So yeah, we could we growing up in the Carolinas, I mean, you know, in the Sally League, at one point there, there were teams, I mean, in seemingly every town in North Carolina. And yeah. you know, and, and the and John League Henry run, Moss. Yeah. Yeah, the, and the league was run out of his living room in Kings Mountain, yeah. North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah, the John Henry Moss, the legend, the the, the Sally League. He was from uh, Shelby, North Carolina, which was the town I lived in when I was in elementary school. And so, yeah, I love going to the different ballparks around the Sally League because the old school ones still have the plaque with, mm-hmm. with John Henry Moss. You know, up I, and I, it, we have it somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, we have yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately as with anything, some things get cut from the book. And I'd written a whole chapter about not a chapter, but a whole passage about my interactions with, with Mr. Moss. And, uh, you know, maybe if they let me do a sequel, I'll, I'll get that in there. He was the president of the league for 50 years and several different iterations of it. Yeah. You're, that's a whole, that's a whole separate thing. But I know you had said in there that of all the places you would went as a kid, your favorite was Asheville. Your favorite was McCormick field, which made, that the perfect setting for the book, the history there, it's the oldest stadium or one of the oldest stadiums in, in uh, that's active in America right now. So what makes, before we get into the details of the book, what makes the setting McCormick field in Nashville so special? Well, it's just, you know, the, the ballpark itself, the framework of the ballpark was, had just been renovated when I was there in 94. It just been renovated a couple of years earlier. The field is the same field. Like yeah. the field, this is the field that was first opened in 1924. And it's, you know, the very first official game, you know, Ty Cobb played in that game. The Detroit Tigers came through town. And, you know, barnstorming major league teams came through town. Babe Ruth, you know, Lou Gehrig, you know, uh, Willie Stargell played for the tourists. I mean, Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella came through with the Dodgers. I mean, and the guys who played for the tour, Craig Vigio and Todd Helton. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just this long list. And so, you know, I, I write this in the book, and I've always said this. I'm fortunate through my my day job to get to be in these amazing sports venues. And to me, the measure of a truly great ballpark, stadium, racetrack, whatever, is how does it feel when it's empty? Mm-hmm. And when you go into McCormick Field, you can feel the ghosts, right? You can feel all those guys. And so that's uh that that's the beauty of that place, and that that's why it was it was near and dear to my heart when I was a kid, and it was near and dear to my heart when I was there just a couple weeks ago. Ron McKee was the is the was the GM of the team. He ran the show uh, at the time you were there and, and was part of the tourists for over 20 years. Um, there are still parts of minor league baseball, a lot of minor league baseball that trace back to to Ron McKee. What, what was your first interaction like with him and, and give us the overall persona? Because he was obviously such a key figure in the story. Well, I mean, so many of us and you might have done this. You just you pack up and you go to the winter meetings. 
And, you know, there's kind of three parts of the winter meetings, the baseball winter meetings. There's the business aspect of it, where all, all the teams and the, the executives and all that. You know, there's the trade show aspect, which is, you know, trying to get you your ballpark to sell my peanuts or to mm-hmm. hire my, you know, my music act or whatever. And then the third part is the job fair. And I went down there for the job fair, which had just become corporatized, is my word. You know, it just it just become like kind of formalized as opposed to just dudes just hanging out in the lobby. It still was dudes hanging out in the lobby. We just had, you know, we had paid money to do it. Yeah. And yeah. yeah and so Ron, my first interaction with Ron with uh they the Asheville Tourists had posted uh three internship positions. Uh, I had dropped my resume in and and they they got a hand the three of us and we sat in the lobby. And waited on Ron. They said, go up, go to the third floor of the Marriott Marquis and sit on this bench. And at three o'clock, you know, whatever. And the elevator doors open. And Ron, I've been in the room with presidents. I've been in the room with Michael Jordan. I've been in the room with Dale Earnhardt. Ron McKee fills the room just as much as any of those people. And so when he came off that elevator, man, and he clapped his hands, all right, boys, here's the deal, you know that kind of set the tone because it was every time he entered the room for the, for the rest of of, my, of his life, that, that's exactly how I felt when he came in the room, you snapped to attention. And so he was already a legend. And so when, uh, when, when it was an opportunity to go work for Ron, uh, I always knew who he was and, uh, and I had to jump at the chance, but it was, uh, it was kind of a battle royal, right? He said, all right, I only have two positions open and there's three of y'all. He goes, between the three of you, you decide who gets the two jobs. Tell me tomorrow morning and walked off. That's wild. <laughs> it's like what? Yeah, <laughs> and so it kind of set the tone for that's that's you know you you did everything on Ron's terms, and that kind of set that tone as soon as he met us. And the guy that lost out or moved or whatever was Mark Seaman, who later ran the Hickory Crawdads for many years. Yeah, ran, ran the Knoxville Smokies. Ran the yeah of the three of us, um, he's the one that kind of got left out. And he took it. He took an internship with the Knoxville Smokies. We all three had gone to school together at Tennessee. And of the three of us, Mark became a, a minor league lifer, and and the other two of us were out in like a year or two. So yeah, it all worked out for Mark. He's fine. So oh, you know, yeah, Mark, I knew Mark a, a little bit from going through there a lot. And he great, uh, great guy, great guy, so, great dude. People might not know Ron McKee trademarked Thirsty Thursday. Every minor league yeah. team in America now does it. And they trademark it. And every year we have to sign, we sign a paper uh, through Major League Baseball that says, you know, we're granted the rights to use the term Thirsty Thursday by the Asheville Tourists. Yeah, I was literally at Thirsty Thursday at the Charlotte Knights last night. So, yeah, no, it's everywhere. And everywhere I go, you know, I collect, I still collect minor league ballparks as I travel. uh, I've been 130 of them now as I travel the country, you know, for work. And the, uh, I, I will book my travel around the minor league schedule. And, uh, you know, if, if it's a ballpark I've never been to, and I love to be there on a Thursday and just laugh because I'm just like, you know, and, and the McKees, uh, Ron passed away a couple of years ago, but his wife, Carolyn, who, who who co-ran the team forever, when I mailed Carolyn her copy of the book, uh, when, it first, when I first got the first copies back in March, I, I laugh because when you send something to, to the McKees, you send it to McKee Road on McKee Mountain. Oh, and, really? Uh, thir- Thirsty Thursday paid for all that, <laughs> so <laughs> we're all drinking on the cheap, and the and the McKees have uh, have benefited from that and still do. That's pretty funny. What was in his desk? Yeah, so that's the first yeah. time. Yeah, first time you meet with Ron in the office. Um, you know, you you learned that there was one desk drawer that was always locked. And keep in mind, kids, this is the nineties. This is kind of right. a different time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the rumor was always what was in the drawer. And, and I heard it was this and I heard it was that and so on and so on. And then, you know, I, I, I snuck a peek in there at one point, in fact, toward the end of the summer. And, and what I saw was there was a, uh, a jar of moonshine. And I'm saying, when I say moonshine, I'm talking about real moonshine, not what you buy at the liquor store mm-hmm. that, you know, has Junior Johnson's name on it. This was, this was brewed, you know, by someone with real corn mash in the mountains of North Carolina. And there was that, and there was a, a 38 special, <laughs> And uh, and there were some uh, some some adult reading. I believe the name of the uh, I believe the name of the magazine was Leg Show. So yeah, it was a uh, Ron was always ready to party. Is what I'm trying to say. It just paints the whole. It gives you the whole. Yeah, the whole story. His, his entire his, Ron's personality was in that drawer. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then right over and then behind him, anytime you talk to Ron in his office, you know a bunch of cool like most 
uh, most of us have, you know, I'm mean, sitting here in my office. We've all got like artifacts we've collected over the years, but he had the big poster, um, you know, of Charlie Brown standing on the, on the pitcher's mound with an umbrella and the rain was just falling on Charlie Brown. And it said, you know, into every life, some rain must fall. And at the bottom, it said, and it's usually on game days. And the, <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's so, true. So weather channel was always on the television, you know, pre-internet days. Uh, you had the gun, the liquor and the reading. And then you had the warning that rain was coming. And that was, uh, that was, that was that, that to me, that is the perfect minor league general manager's office. So you get one of the three internship positions there, but it, you, you got, a, it's basically like a general internship and you bounced around. Yeah. So you guys worked in all these different, um, all these different departments. What were some of the tasks that, uh, that you had to do that people that might surprise some folks? So you rotated jobs and you had like the ticket office intern, you had the front office intern, you had the concessions intern and and you rotated jobs, you know, every other week or, or once a month or whatever. And ticket office is what it sounds like. You, during the day you were in the box office and you were answering the phone. You also ran the, the, uh, the souvenir store next door, mm -hmm. uh, the bearware store. We call it back then. Now they call it the tourist trap, which is awesome. Good, good for, that I wish good. I wish I'd have thought good. of that. that yeah. 94. Right. And so, <laughs> Uh, and then you had the front office intern and your job during the day was to answer the phones and send faxes, kids. Those were yeah, papers yeah. that we used to see. Yeah. And the, uh, um, we got in trouble cause we would kind of at the dawn of, of fantasy baseball, we'd get our stats every day on the fax machine that cost money and it made Ron mad, but, uh, but you would help in the office, but you also set up the press box, you know, you go down and set up the speed pitch and all those things. Um, and then you had the concessions intern, which is exactly what it sounds like. You're, thawing hot dogs and you're, you know, making ice, the snow cone ice. And, you know, you're changing out the kegs in the beer cooler on Thursday, Thursday, like reverse Donkey Kong, I think I called it. But no matter what the job was, when you got that sheet of paper, and there's actually a, a scanned copy of it in the book, um, here's all the job duties for each position. And at the bottom of each job in bold, you know, all caps type, it just said TARP. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, no matter what you're doing in the ballpark, whether you're the general manager or whether you're the hundred dollar week intern, when the rain started, everyone reported down the first baseline and started pulling the tarp. So yeah, every job was a little bit different, but the, the great equalizer was mother nature. So one of the best stories you had in the book was about the time you got airborne yeah. by pulling the tarp. Um, it's a unique experience. And, you know, nowadays we have, we have, you know, 20 to 25 people that'll be down there. Yeah. You guys had, if there was, if there was not a game going on, you might have six. It's right. a lot different uh, situation, but tell us about when you got airborne. Yeah. We, we had a deal where you're right. You know, what we would do is we would recruit people out of the grandstands. Hey, help us pull the tarp. And we Which had is a, amazing. Yeah. Huge box of really cheap t-shirts that said McCormick field tarp crew. And, and the, the, the hilarious thing is, um, I don't know when they stopped doing that, but when I went to tourist opening day in April, there was a guy walking around with one of those tarp crew t-shirts. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's, they're still out there. So my, one of my college roommates who came to see me at the ballpark, uh, we were like, dude, I need, I was like, dude, we need your help. He's like, you serious? And he said, yeah, and he's about half drunk. He still has his tarp crew t-shirt from 30 years ago. So that, that thing, that thing's like cigarettes in prison, right? Yeah. That thing is that thing is very valuable in the and street. You could, trade, but, you could trade him in, right? Yeah. So like a hot dog yeah, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but most people just you know, just kept them, but yeah, we would try to recruit help. We get scout troops, whatever. But on this particular night, as you know, in the summertime, you can go from sunny skies to just a God awful thunderstorm, you know, in seconds. Mm -hmm. And in the mountains of North Carolina, uh, McCormick field is literally carved into the side of a mountain. And so when those storms would roll in, I'm telling you, man, it was crazy. And so we had one of those come in, and we start pulling the tarp, and as we're coming, you, know, you, you you roll roll it out to center field, and you unfurl it, and you pull the tarp back across the infield. And as we're coming back across the infield, at the time, I weighed about 125 pounds soaking wet, and I was certainly soaking wet that day. I'm holding on to the, 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 the nylon loop, you know, the handle where you yep. pull the tarp, mm -hmm. and a gust of wind came off the mountain, and got up underneath that tarp and when it did it was like those uh it was like those parachutes you know you used to play with in elementary school right where, where you're putting the air under it 
And that thing lifted me up off the ground and my feet are just churning and I'm, I'm airborne. And I, and I wrote this in the book. If, you, if you're a big Disney world person, like I am, if you ever ridden soaring, which is when your feet are dangling and you're flying over like the Eiffel tower and the, and the pyramids of Giza and all that's how I felt. And so you have to make a decision. Do I let go and drop or do I try to ride this out? And I let go. And in my mind, I'm a big Captain America guy. In my mind, I look like Captain America, right? Do the superhero landing, the three-point landing on the ground. The reality is, I think what I, I think the way I described it in the book was, the reality was I looked like a hostage they no longer needed and threw out of a van while they were driving down the road. I literally just did like a barrel roll and slid yeah. through the grounds and all that. I remember I went into the dugout and Fred Kendall, who's the manager of the Hickacrawdads, played in the big leagues forever. His son, Jason, was a catcher for the Pirates forever. Sure. Um I kind of crawled into the dugout. My hands are shaking. And I, all of a sudden, Kendall goes, you all right? And I'm like, coach, I think I'm okay. And he goes, uh, you got you got some pretty good air right there. And then he started telling me stories about stuff he had seen at Three River Stadium and and in and, and San Diego, all these places he played. And so it calmed me down. But, yeah, uh, years later, I interviewed a guy named Felix Bumgarner for ESPN Magazine. Felix Literally, he's the guy who skydove from space, like jumped off of the satellite. And and and, and, I, and I was like, yeah, man, I know how that feels. <laughs> I, totally, I, I totally know how that feels. I circled that in the book. That was so good. That I was appreciate so good. it. Um, so I guess part of the charm of the book and the just working in minor league baseball, <clears throat> you know, you run into all these different characters from from every area. And I'll ask you about a couple of them that that you came uh, in touch with that were Asheville characters, but you know, they're similar folks. Well, maybe not similar to some of them everywhere around the country, like James, the mountain man. Yeah. So James, the mountain man, he literally, I mean, listen, most stereotypes exist for a reason, right? I mean, yeah. they're based in fact, and James was the sweetest guy in the world, but James was a hillbilly and James would come to the ballpark and he literally looked like, the old guy that used to be on like the Mountain Dew cans back in the seventies, right? He's got he's got overalls, denim overalls with no shirt on underneath it, and you know in my mind he wasn't wearing shoes, but I'm sure that he was, and he was kind of bald and had a big old beard, and he had a canvas bag. And James didn't really talk a lot, um, and he was just a sweet guy. He just shows up one night for like the very first homestand, and I'm like, hey, there's some guy you know, breaking into the ballpark. He just wandered in the back gate, the, the service gate back there where they get the dumpsters. Like, no, 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 that's James. And I realized during batting practice, um, you know this, at McCormick Field, there's a, a 30-foot yeah. right field wall, kind of like, like the Green Monster, you know. In it Fenway, goes all the way out field. to right center. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, so balls are hit over this all the time. And, again, ballpark's carved into a mountain. So balls hit the side of that mountain and roll down the hill and, and go to – you know, to the base go to of rest, the wall. Yeah. but behind the wall. James, his job was he'd go behind the wall and collect baseballs because, as you know, baseballs are really expensive. I didn't know that until I looked at this job. And we would pay James like 50 cents per clean baseball and 25 cents per dirty baseball. And James would just crawl around back there the whole game collecting baseballs. When the game's over with, here's the bag. You know, and we'd, we'd go through them. Or here's a clean one, a dirty one, clean one, a dirty one, and give him some money, just literally like quarters. And, uh, but James also part of the deal was he could keep whatever he found back there animal wise. So again, the ballpark's up against the side of a mountain. There's kudzu. And it's like, I'm a big star Wars guy. It's like, it's like where Yoda, the planet where Yoda lived, Dagobah, right? It's, it's wet right. and it's gross and there's like a jungle. And James would literally come out of there with squirrels and raccoons and skunks and whatever. And again, being a hillbilly, he just, he'd take them home and eat them. Right. Yeah. He put him in a stew. I remember he came out one time I wrote in the book and he had a, he's like, he's like, Hey, look at here. And he held up his bag. And I was like, damn, James, there's a snake on you. <laughs> and, and I'm not, I'm not talking about the snake was wrapped around his wrist. The snake was like, had his fangs in him and was hanging off of James's arm. And James literally took that snake and with a pop, he pulled that snake out of his wrist and spun it around to, to break its neck and threw it in the bag. And just left. We're like, all right. So yeah, whatever he could kill, he could eat, and then whatever baseballs he would find, we would pay him for. One thing that I'm fairly confident in <clears throat> in working in minor league baseball for 
over 10 years now is that no, every groundskeeper is wired differently. And <laughs> yeah. It's the fertilizer, it, right? You can, They're maybe, around, around all that radioactive material. Yeah. And you, nobody could ever convince me otherwise. And uh, I received further confirmation when learning about your, your guy, Grady Gardner. Yeah. Which, by the way, I mean, how about that name? It's a great right? name. Yeah. Grady perfect, Gardner perfect name. is the grounds crew guy, right? And the reality was, so, so like like in a lot of minor league ballparks, the ballpark, McCormick Field, is owned and operated by the city and the mm -hmm. county. And so he worked for, you know, Buncombe County. He worked for, for, for Parks and Rec. And I don't even know that, that Grady originally knew how to grow grass. But but that was that was the job that he was assigned to. And, uh, and he basically worked out of a little shed, you know, down, down the third baseline. And he kept, like, uh, all this archery equipment. And he'd be down there, you know, bow hunting, practicing his, you know, if his, you could hear it, his, you know, like Hawkeye, you know, from the Avengers is living down the third baseline. Yeah. But Grady looked like Sam Elliott from Roadhouse. He had this kind of long, you know, gray hair and he'd slick it back. And, and Grady, uh, Grady, Grady was never a candidate to die of any stress-related illnesses. I can tell you that. He, he'd get yelled at by the Colorado Rockies. He get yelled at by Ron. He get yelled at by Parks and Rec, and he just be like, "I'm good. I just need to cut the grass." And uh, but the the best though was on Tuesday nights, um, and this is the '90s now. So this is this is this is the the high era of Garth Brooks and um, you know line dancing and all that. And every Tuesday night, Grady went line dancing, and so we were kind of on our own. If you had a game uh, or not. Yo, game yeah, or not, yeah. Grady's going line dancing. In fact, the game would start, and you would hear the shower running in the club, had the visitor's clubhouse, and the game's going on, and you, it'd be Grady down there getting ready for his date. And his date would roll up right in front of the ballpark right after the game started in this white, like it was a minivan, but it had a conversion van kit on it. So imagine the A-team van if they shrunk it, right? It's got a big wing on it and all that stuff, and it was called the Tropical Traveler. And I know this because it was painted in blue along with like this blue sunset you know, scene from the beach. And every Tuesday night, Grady would make a big deal out of walking through the crowd, looking like Sam Elliott and, and you know, his pressed jeans. And he'd, he'd go boot scooting. He'd get in the van and leave. And so, yeah, if there was any issue on a Tuesday night, we're on our own, man, because uh, my man, my man, Grady Gardner, was, uh, he, was, he was hanging out with Brooks and Dunn down there at the, uh, at the Cadillac Ranch. There were a lot of great stories in the book, but I think the the line where I laughed the hardest was when uh, you were the you're the concessions intern for this period or whatever. And you had to bring food and soda to the umpires after the game. And there was a yeah. there was a rain situation. And yeah. Ron had gotten ejected because you guys had a rehabber there that everybody from, yeah. who was from Asheville that everybody wanted to see. Yeah. And the umpires had called the game because the field was wet and they were like perplexed and they wanted to know why Ron was so mad. So they said, Hey, can we talk to the groundskeeper? And you said, no. And they said, why not? And you said, it's Tuesday. <laughs> it's Tuesday night. It's Tuesday they go, night. Yeah. Well, they go, what the hell does that make? I said, <laughs> Randy Gardner goes line dancing on Tuesday night. Yeah. No, that, mm -hmm. I, that, that was, that was honestly, no, no lie. My favorite line I wrote in the book was that passage. I literally just sat at my laptop laughing. Cause I was like, again, you know better than anyone. You can't make it up. No, no. And, and, and so when, when you and everyone, you know, again, I, I had this one window. The reality is you could write a book. Everyone you work with, the Blue Claws could write a book. Uh, everyone at every ballpark you've ever worked in as a broadcaster, they could write a book. And, and yeah, but but yeah, when I looked at those guys, I said, you can't talk to Grady. It's Tuesday night. That was uh, that was um, that, that might that might have been my favorite moment of the summer. Yeah, that that was that was pretty funny. Uh, a couple more just quick things to touch on the um, that summer they were filming Richie Rich yeah. in Asheville at the Biltmore, and this is like peak Macaulay Culkin. Home Alone had just come out well, a year or two, whatever be, before yeah. that, and the the tourists played a, a little role in the uh, in the filming of of a scene with Reggie Jackson. There, tell us about that. Yeah, so. Macaulay Culkin was the biggest movie star in the world in 1994. That's not even a question. You know, Home Alone was so massive and still is, but it was so yeah. massive. I think at the time it was the number three film at the box office ever. It was like Titanic and Star Wars and Home Alone. Like, I don't think people understand these days how big it was. And so he was in town shooting Richie Rich. Uh, some of the other actors that were in the film, 
Edward Herman and and these guys they they would come to ball games and just kind of lay low and hang out on a thirsty Thursday. Um, and and it was always all summer. It was I think I saw Macaulay caulking at the Walmart. I think I saw Macaulay caulking at McDonald's. I think I saw Macaulay caulking whatever. Yeah, and I'm like really They're like the newspapers like he's Macaulay caulking seen at Walmart buying flowers. Really? Why why is Macaulay caulking at the Walmart? You know buying flowers. He wasn't. That's just what people said. Called the paper. Hey, I just saw mm-hmm. you know I just saw Kevin from Home Alone right at the Walmart. But yes, the house, the Biltmore Estate, the the house built by the Vanderbilt family you know, at the height of kind of the great Gatsby era, um, they were shooting scenes there and they called the ballpark. The casting director did because they needed baseball players, professional baseball players, because Reggie Jackson was coming into town, the scene that's in the film. And, and it's at the very beginning of the movie uh, to this day that, you know, Richie Rich, because he's rich, has hired the New York Yankees to come you know, play baseball with him and the staff, you know, the maids and the butler and all that stuff. And so they needed uh, baseball players, particularly a pitcher, uh, to to be a New York Yankees pitcher. So they call the ballpark, hey, we're looking for real professional baseball players. Well, the problem is the tourists are actual real professional baseball players rolling the road for like mm-hmm. for like eight days or something. And so uh, we're like, okay, and we, we tell Ron, hey, Ron, you know, this is the dilemma we're in. And he goes, you know what? We'll call UNC Asheville, the local college. We'll send some of those guys over. And we're like, you know what? We'll take care of that for you. We're, we're good. We'll take care of that for you. And as soon as as Ron left the room, R.J. Martino, uh, our, our our sales guy looked at me and he goes, "We're not calling UNC Asheville. We're going and auditioning for the movie." <laughs> and so we all loaded up in the in the car the next day and went over to the hotel where the, where the directors, we're the, the whole cast, everyone was staying, and we showed up, you know, cleats and gloves, and we all got tourist hats on. And I was like, I'm five ten, hundred twenty five pounds. I think I'm pulling this off. It's very obvious. I'm not a professional baseball player. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, RJ looks the part. He's from New York. You know, he, he you know he's Italian. He's got he look. He looks like he wears the Yankees hat all the time. Anyway, he looked like a Yankee, and so he's in the movie. So if you watch the film, uh, there's this really awesome slow tilt up through you know of this New York Yankees pitcher looking in for a sign. That's that's RJ Martino who, who worked in minor league baseball forever. And so, uh, yeah. And then also they rented equipment right. and, uh, what Ron to his last day on this earth continued to remind RJ Martino was that RJ got paid a couple of hundred dollars to be in the movie, but they paid way more than that to rent the L screen, you know, the pitching screen <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that they used in the film to keep uh, Macaulay Cocker from getting hit by pitches. One of the things I, th- I thought was really cool. You, you were, you guys as a staff were, pretty close to or close-ish to the the on-field staff from the tourists and, and even some of the other guys. I mean, there was a – you talked about uh, the Hickory manager, uh, Kendall, Dave yep. Kendall, uh, from – he was narrating for you guys the OJ chase yeah. because it was in his neighborhood. But, you so yeah. you, you know, you guys got pretty close to the, to the different staffs, and there was a line – it was relatively near the end. The Rockies had sent down a pitcher from AAA who had the yips, couldn't throw the ball to the plate. And yep. you're in the dugout, you know, kind of BSing with the, with the pitching coach. And he's like, Hey, do you got any ideas about how to reach this guy? I got nothing. And yeah. I'm thinking about it and I'm like, well, nowadays he would call three uh, pitching coordinators in Denver. Yep. He would call two mental skills coaches and three analysts. But in 1994, those people did not exist. Nope. And he be and he had befriended you over the over the course of the season. And nowadays, in many minor league parks, if the pitching coach walked through the front office, unless he was wearing a sign that said "I'm the pitching coach," maybe five people would know who he was. But yeah. you know, you you knew him really well, and you you talked to him for years afterwards. And it's just a different kind of different kind of era. And I think that is part of the charm of the story. Well, I appreciate Jack LeMave, and his nickname was Tomatoes. Tomatoes. Because, uh, he, his face was red, and he he pitched for the for the Cardinals and the Pirates and the Red Sox, and and you know he won a World Series ring with the Cardinals with Bob Gibson, the legendary showdown with Jim Lonborg in the in the Red Sox uh, World Series, and so yeah, it was um, you're right, and Tony Torsher was our manager, who was kind of was career minor league manager, and it was interesting because. We got really tight with the with the coaching staff. Bill McGuire, Moose was our was our hitting coach, had just been a player, you know, a year or two before. He's become a legend. I cover college baseball, he's become a legendary 
college baseball umpire. And so, yeah, it was funny because we became close with those guys. We weren't that close with the players. Mm-hmm. And I look back now, and I was the same age as those players. You know, half our, 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 our roster had just finished college. I had just finished college. You know, you know Jamie Wright, who was kind of our nuclear loose, who pitched in the big leagues for almost 20 years. Jamie, when I I call track Jamie down, I interviewed him for the book, and when the interview was over, Jamie kind of apologized. Man, we should have hung out more. Like I really <laughs> enjoyed talking to him. Like yeah, but but you know, there's kind of a moat yeah. between you know the office and, and the players. But with the coaches, it wasn't that way. But, but yeah, that's a great point. I wish I'd written that about the, the you know the sports psychologist, right? You know now this you know this guy Chris Burke, who was the original number one pick of the Rockies, and he just he literally. He said he physically could not see home plate. Mm-hmm. And Jack LeMabe, who was as old school as there ever came, Jack was like, I don't know what to do with that. But you're exactly right. Now, you know, in, in everyone's phone, you know, they'd have, you know, a swing coach and a pitching coach and a mental coach and an agent, and they'd have all these people that they would call. But it was just a simpler structure and a simpler deal in 94. And so, and I think, honestly, and you know this, Greg, I mean, the timing of the book, um, I certainly didn't plan it this way, but minor league baseball is kind of at this inflection point. And the way that the game was then and the atmosphere of what minor league baseball was then, I think it's really important that people who work in minor league baseball now do everything they can to to maintain that feeling. I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a dummy. I, I know I understand it's a business. I understand it's growing. I understand major league baseball runs minor league baseball. And I understand all that. But as long as the spirit of like that experience in 94 or what you see in bull Durham or the stories that you hear from the, even the seventies and the sixties, as long as that spirit is still there, then, you know, we all benefit from that. As long as minor league baseball is fun, you know, as long, as long as it doesn't feel like you're going to a business meeting, which a lot of major league games can feel like as long as it feels like you're just at a ball game chilling, then you know, mission accomplished. So just everybody needs to do everything they can to, to keep that, that spirit of 94 alive. And what you and you told Jack, hey, I'm still trying to figure out how to get the ice cream in the Dairy Queen machine. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Jack was <laughs> so the rule was there's no alcohol in the clubhouse, right? Because there's a bunch of 19 year olds, 18 year olds on yeah. the team. But every night, as part of your, you talking about that list of duties for the concession intern. The most important thing you had to do every night was, you, you made sure there was a six pack, in Jack's locker packed with ice, and he he had this thing where he just pulled his pants down, and he just on the bus. In the clubhouse, whatever, like the play. A lot of the players told me he said he'd be asleep on the bus. They'd wake, they roll into whatever in the middle, roll into Hagerstown in the middle of the night. Hey, Jack, pull up your pants, man. We're at the hotel, and so it just. But, you know, and he coached at LSU forever. I actually wrote a story for ESPN.com just this week about these great college baseball atmospheres in the SEC, and Jack Lemay was kind of the last coach of bad LSU baseball before LSU baseball became this machine. And it was fun going down to Baton Rouge, and I, I went into the LSU Baseball Hall of Fame, and there was tomatoes. There, there was That's Jack LeMave, you know, big plaque of him. And so, yeah, he to me, he's as minor league baseball as it gets. Back to the podcast in a second. Since 1986, Rich Green Lawns has been the leading lawn fertilization company of the Jersey Shore, providing lawn fertilization, bed weed control, ticket mosquito control, as well as tree and shrub programs. Mention this ad and save 50% off your first lawn application. Call or text us today at 732-370-5963, 732-370-5963, or richgreenlawns.com. And when shopping for appliances, electronics, and mattresses, you want a local hometown team that you can trust. That's PC Richard & Son. PC Richard & Son is a friendly and knowledgeable sales team, installations and repair service you can trust, and the guaranteed lowest prices. So get to PC Richard & Son today. Shop smart. Shop local. Shop PC Richard & Son. Last story, the Battle of Hickory is also yeah. about as minor league baseball as it gets. This is in, in Hickory, the 1994 uh, SAL All-Star Weekend or All-Star. That, that's not a weekend. It was a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I think, right? Oh, that's what it is. That's what it was when I was – when before the restructure. By the way, so yeah. the All-Star game's coming up. This is the day before. We talked about John Henry Moss um, earlier. This The Battle of Hickory probably did not – Please, John Henry Moss, tell us about that story, which I, I never heard that story. It's amazing. Yeah, well, and it, and, and there's of all the stories in the book, you know, it basically gets its own chapter. It got its own chapter, yeah. And when I told that story, that's kind of what convinced Doubleday to do, publish the book. Um, and, you know, as with all great battles in history, 
um, there are a lot of different versions of what went down. I always say, you know, all those farmers at Gettysburg, they're all sitting on their porch watching the battle. They all they all have nine different stories of how that went down. And the Battle of Hickory has been that way. Ever since the book came out, a lot of people who were there that day have said, well, I remember it like this, or I don't remember it like that, but I remember it like this. But that's, we all interpret, you know, amazing moments, amazing battles of history different. But the Battle of Hickory, they took the 14 mascots of the South Atlantic League in 94. So it's Ted E. Tourist, um, who we, we had a bear who was a tourist. I mean, it's a, it's a bear with a Hawaiian shirt mm-hmm. and a suitcase, and, you know, you know, he's on vacation. He's a tourist, right? And he's a bear because from North Carolina mountains. And it was the, the Albany polecat, which is a skunk. And, you know, the Fayetteville generals uh, because of Fort Bragg. And so you had, and then you had like Bomber the Mouse from Columbia. Some of them didn't make any sense, but whatever. We line them all up. And, and the one, the, the, the ones. And you're not the mascot. Based, you're, you're watching. You're I'm watching. Yeah. So I, I was the mascot for about 10 minutes and I'm, I have a baseball card. Baseball card that's, yeah. in, that's in the book as well. But yeah, we lined it. So they line, we're all sitting in the stands. Went on the, you know, it's basically photo night. And so they line up the 14 mascots and I call them the big heads, right? The, the guys that are just, a, it's, it's a dude in a baseball uniform with a big foam head on the Hagerstown sign, right? Mm-hmm. Just, or, or the Spartanburg Philly, which is just this big, tall head. And then you've got, you know, the big hands. And these are the folks that are in the much more involved, almost Walt Disney world, you know, mascot costumes. And we line them up. And at some point, someone was blocking the view of someone else and we couldn't hear them talking. And the rule is mascots aren't supposed to talk, but I guess they did because they were all just kind of in their bubble. Someone got mad at someone else and there was a shove. And then that shove turned into another shove and that shove turned into a punch and that punch turned into a push. And next thing you know, you know, it took me about 20 pages to describe it in the book. It all took about eight seconds. And next thing you know, the Spartanburg Philly was the one I remember. He had a huge horse's head that he just started whipping around. If you ever seen a giraffe fight, like on the Nat Geo channel, that's what it looked like. And we can hear shouting and there's fighting going on and some are fleeing for their lives and some are actually throwing down. And the, the craziest part was that everyone has a smile on their face. Yeah. Right. It's the mascots. I mean, everybody, everybody, everybody's got a permanent smile affixed on their face while they're fighting. And so all this goes down. Uh, executives rush the field to, to, to break it up. And uh, I just always remember as we're, as we were kind of you know, laughing and getting everybody out of there, there was like one furry paw, like a glove that was just laying out on the field, like, like the last <laughs> remnant, you know, of the battle. And then the best part of that was in your mind, you're thinking, I didn't just see that. There's no way that actually just happened. And later that night we were out running around Hickory, North Carolina, they're in the foothills of the Appalachians, and we went to uh, this roadhouse, and Minnie Minoso, who was in town uh, as part of like you know an all classic all star you know yeah. game, Minnie looked at me and he goes, "I said, hey Minnie Minoso, would you sign my ticket?" He starts to sign it, and he was so drunk, and he looked at me and he goes, "Hey, how about that damn mascot fight?" And so I was like, "Wait, that actually happened." <laughs> <laughs> the other the other thing I just thought of that that story is amazing. Uh, I wish that happened today. Um, the we were just talking about this an hour before we started recording was uh somebody was making a shirt and they were the they were we were counting you know how many colors are on the the blue yeah. claws logo because you know when you print it you know it costs more money if there are more colors on it or whatever and, and ron complaining and you mentioned this in the book ron complaining that teddy tourist had 10 colors so yeah. anytime you printed it or it or certainly embroidered it it would just cost so much more than you know, a standard, you know, like the, the interlocking NY is one logo, you know, or one yeah. color and Teddy yeah. tourist is 10. <laughs> yeah. I well, mean, the, ten, yeah, the original, tens a lot. Yeah. No, the original Asheville tourist logo was just an A like right. in the mountains. It was this cool kind of block kind of stylized looking almost like a collegiate a over, over like a, the mountains had like two colors in it. It was great. But yeah, Teddy tourist was the, this 94 year was Ted had just been introduced as the new mascot. And, and there was this, you know, art, Asheville's a very artistic uh, town. And this local artist did this amazing rendering that the team still uses of Teddy Taurus. And he's walking and he's got a suitcase. Well, he's got about nine different shades of brown in him. And he's got a red shirt and he's got, you know, sunglasses and he's got a suitcase with stickers on it. Yeah, he used all these colors. 
Little and all Ron saw with money. Picnic color, yeah, they're red. Yeah, and yeah, 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 exactly. All Ron saw with money. Like every, like every piece of letterhead, every every sticker, every sign, every bit of signage. All he could see was now I got to use all this different ink to print this thing. It's going to cost me too much money. So yeah, there was. So I noticed when the, when the tourists several years ago they came up with a, a new uh, mascot. And uh, in fact, I got his, I got his hat yeah, on Mr. now. Moon. Yeah, Mr. Yeah. Moon. Mr. Moon, I think has, has three colors and one of those is white. So whoever did the new one realized they learned their lesson from, but Ted still hangs around. I was there a few weeks ago and Ted's still there. And, uh, and the old logo, it, it was cool. Cause I went up to do a, the, the, the book launched just a couple of days before opening day for the tourists. And it was cool because a lot of people had old school, you know, nineties, Teddy tourist stuff on. And, uh, I was glad to know that Teddy still he, he still at least the ghost of Teddy Tourist is still hanging around even with all his colors. Yeah, no, very cool, very cool. So as as we wrap it up, and thanks, it's been amazing. It's been a, a lot of fun. What advice would you give based on your experience in 1994? You know, a young, you know, 22 year old recent college graduate that that's kind of thinking about stepping their foot into uh, to minor league baseball. You, just, you gotta do it all, yeah. right? You gotta do it all. I mean, you know this. I mean, it's. The, the 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 most difficult part of working minor league baseball is having to do a little bit of everything but it's also the most but it's fun. also the most fun yeah it's the most fun i mean it's it's and, and even now i was there one summer and and i have the, i dedicated the book to the people who have dedicated their lives you know to working in minor league baseball and it's because they love it you don't get rich you know the hours are stupid you don't you know it, it's but it is so much fun and so that's that's my advice is if you have a chance to do this, even even if it's even if you're a college student and you're just taking a summer job working in a concession stand or you know selling programs or tearing tickets, whatever, just to experience it. Because even now, when I'm covering the college football playoff championship, or if I'm covering you know the NFL playoffs or, or whatever, I see things differently than my colleagues do. Because even though it was one summer of cooking hot dogs and pulling tarps, I got a window into how it works and. I think people forget. We we think about the teams on the field. We think about the leagues. We think about the NCAA. We think about you know the television network, all that stuff. But none of us get to do any of that if it isn't for the people running the facility and and running you know the home team. And so uh, I just that that my advice is if you have a chance to do it, do it. And if it's for free, it's for free. And if it's for hundred dollars a week, it's for hundred dollars a week. But it will it will you could write your own book when you're done. And how many times did you hear view from the cheap seats that summer? Oh God, it was summer '94. <laughs> I've already heard from like so. I write it in the book it, that that Alabama song "Cheap Seats" came out. A couple guys in the band Alabama were investors in in you know the Nashville sounds, and God bless them. It's a great song, but uh, but we played it way too much. If I hear mustard and relish one more i i, I reflexively like go to punch somebody in the face <laughs> it's a but it, it's a great song but i could not listen to it for about 10 years after that summer <laughs> the the book is amazing it's called welcome to the circus of baseball get it on amazon or wherever you can get your books ryan mcgee from espn thank you so much really appreciate it i read it as i told you before in, in three settings zoom right through it it's it's hilarious uh i think the folks are really gonna like it and uh thank you so well, much for a few minutes Hey, no, I appreciate it. And go Blue Claws. And when you're when, next time you cover something up here, you, you let us know and you, we'll, uh, we'll bring you out. Oh, no, I would love to do it. I'd love to do it. Add it to the list. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks to Ryan McGee for joining us. Welcome to the Circus of Baseball. Uh, just an amazing book. Uh, I don't know what my favorite part was. I think it was probably Grady Gardner, the groundskeeper, who didn't work Tuesday games because it was line dancing night at the local honky-tonk. But I don't think you can go wrong with James the Mountain Man, uh, Richie Rich and the L Screen, and there are so many more. And, uh, you know, it's kind of nostalgic, too. It's just a different era now, but I, it's still great. Um, but it was different then, and that's, uh, that's really cool. It's a great book. Give it, give, it, uh, give it a read. Welcome to the Circus of Baseball. Ryan McGee, Amazon. Uh, or wherever you get your books. Baseball fans introducing Bally Live, the only app where minor league baseball fans can score major rewards. When you stream your favorite teams live, you'll score rewards. When you chat with friends during a watch party, you'll score rewards. And when you test your skills at trivia, you'll score rewards. Being a fan of the minor leagues has never been so rewarding, so what are you waiting for? Download Bally Live for free from the app or Google Play Store and start scoring rewards today. Blue Claws are home through Sunday. Wilmington's in town 
uh, coming into this series, by the way, I'm taping this on Monday afternoon, coming into this series with Wilmington, the Blue Claws have, uh, have played nine home games. It's the fewest of any team of 120 in minor league baseball. And between their last home game, which was on Thursday, April 27th, and Tuesday, 19 days, and it's believed to be the longest gap between home games in any team in minor league baseball history because if you think about it, until 2021, no team ever had a two-week-long road trip. Now, they should have. That's a different story uh, that we can talk about some other time, but they never did them. Dusty Watson told them that they should do two-week road trips to cut back on travel when uh, he was managing here in 2009, and he was right, and nobody listened, and now they do them uh, as normal. So I think Dusty should get a, go somewhere for, for his apologies now, the Philly's third base coach. Uh, and, of course, the, this was uh, extended because of the three rainouts on April 28th, 29th, and 30th against Brooklyn. Those games, if you're wondering, by the way, will be made up. Two of them will. May 31st, doubleheader here, and June 3rd, a doubleheader here, both at 535 and uh, those two double dips will make up two of the three. The third game will not be made up because you can only play two doubleheaders in one week. So Blue Claws home through Sunday with Wilmington here and the Philly Fanatics here Thursday. Friday night is Marvel Superhero Night with Black Panther. That'll be fun. Special jerseys are up for auction right now at MILBauctions.com. Blue Claws Charities benefits from those jersey sales. Uh, Saturday, a 405 game. It's Buster's birthday and Touch Em Trucks Day, which is presented by Judge Shaw Injury Law. That's always a fun day. Uh, really, two fun days that are uh, even better now uh, merged together. Sunday, Bark in the Park, Toyota World of Lakewood, 95.9 The Rat, 100.1 WJRZ. 10 a.m. is the dog carnival outside the stadium, and then gates open at 12, first pitch at 105. Tickets at blueclaws.com. That'll do it. For Hook, Line, and Splitter, episode 65, presented by Judge Shaw, Injury Law. I'm Greg Jamborisi, and normally we send you out with Take Me Out to the Ball Game on the Hammond organ, but we're not doing that today. Alabama, take it away. Ryan McGee, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Circus of Baseball. Get it on Amazon or wherever you get books. Good day, everybody. See you in short town from the cheap seats. We like our beer flat as candy. We like our dogs with mustard and relish. We got a great pitcher, what's his name? Well, we can't even spell it. We don't worry about the pen as much. We just like to see the boys hit it deep. There's nothing like the view from the cheeks.